never settle, never assume that good is good enough. The world is moving at such a fast pace that if you don't do that, you might find yourself far out of the race in the long run. way to get the best ideas is to get a group of non-like-minded minds around the table with different experiences, different backgrounds, different ways of thinking. That leads to the best ideas and it leads to the fastest development of those ideas. What is a common theme, regardless of, of anything else, is diversity is really, really important for what we need to do to bring the ideas to the table. From Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina, this is Sound Effect. Here's your host, Megan Hayes. On April 14th, Appalachian State University had the pleasure of hosting John Osborne on our campus. He spent time with our students in small groups and addressed our entire campus with a talk about the importance of service to others and the role of business in this endeavor. John Osborne was named President and Chief Executive Officer of BBDO in New York in 2004. BBDO is the world's most awarded advertising agency. It got its start in 1891, and now, with 15,000 employees and 289 offices across eight countries, it is the second largest global advertising agency network, with its headquarters in New York. During Osborne's tenure, the agency has been named Agency of the Year 15 times by various media outlets and has delivered some of the most innovative cross-channel ideas in TV work in the industry. Commercials from BBDO New York for Snickers and M&M's were voted the most popular in the Super Bowl in two of the past five games. And in 2014, a commercial for GE was nominated for a primetime commercial Emmy. John Osborne served as chairman of the board for the Center of Excellence in Advertising at Howard University and as chairman of the board for the American Advertising Federation. He earned his BA at Dartmouth and continues to serve as a member of its alumni association. While on campus, John Osborne came by the Greg Cuddy podcast studio to talk with us about creativity and creative problem solving in the workplace. Mr. John Osborne, welcome to Sound Effect. Thank you for joining us today. It's great to be here. In our research on you, we found an address that you made at the Creative Problem Solving Institute conference. I think it was in 2013. And we were really intrigued by this because at Appalachian, we work really hard to um, nurture and develop creative problem solving skills in our students. And we find that when they learn these creative approaches to problem solving, then they take that beyond the classroom and they really find ways to learn in every experience that they have in life. And this is something that we're just interested in talking with you more a bit about because, well, for one thing, it's something that we feel like we do pretty well at Appalachian. So when they leave here, they're able to explore the ability to utilize different approaches to problem solving in the workplace and in life. So one of the things we wanted to talk to you about was your philosophy and your approach to creativity in the workplace and also in life. Well, that's a great question. And it's a big question. We could probably spend a couple hours talking about this very topic. Um, obviously, creativity is, for us, our entire business. It is our business in every way, shape, and, and, and form. Um, it's how we're judged. It's how we attract new business. It's how we maintain the business that we have. When we take a look at creativity, it all starts with understanding what the problem is. And sometimes we get given a problem, but it's not necessarily the actual problem. So when we're first presented with a challenge or a problem, the first thing we do is we step back and we unpack it. And we look at really what are the influences behind that problem, and we truly try and understand it. Obviously, research and data um, and analytics play a much bigger role today in that process than it ever has. Additionally, we look at things that go beyond sort of what I'll call the traditional ways of understanding the problem. So we still do focus groups, but 
more often than not, we'll go into people's homes, we'll watch how they truly behave. You can, as Yogi Berra once said, you can see an awful lot just by observing. And so through that process, we're able to get a much better handle on what the actual issue really is. And then that sets up what we'll call our briefing process, where we try and distill it down into something manageable and we build our strategies on that. And then obviously our strategies are the rocket fuel that, that, that enable us to do the executional work that we do. But it all starts with the problem solving. So you obviously work in this, in a creative organization with creative people. Um, can you talk about why this is important for you personally and what you personally get out of that experience? Well, I love the whole creative process. I think uh, while I'm not a creative, um, I consider myself somewhat of a creative person. Um, I would describe, I guess, myself as someone who's creatively curious. Um, we in the agency, uh, we, we organize ourselves in a very open way and like physically open. One of the biggest changes that we undertook within BBDO was we literally tore the walls down. And the days of uh, advertising movies or shows that you may have grown up on where there's a creative team sitting in a vacuum in an office throwing pencils at the ceiling, that's not really how problems are solved any longer. It takes a group of diverse people with different backgrounds sitting around a table coming up with what these ideas are. Media needs to be inextricably linked with the creative idea itself. Part of that is driven by technology and the explosion of um, different apps and different uh, types of technology that are available to us today. Um, but it's a—it's really a group effort. It, it takes a village um, in every essence of the of the definition of that. Kind of pulling up a little bit. How do you define creative problem solving? Um, what is it you know in terms of what that looks like? You talked about that a little bit, but if you were going to say, okay, this is what creative problem solving means. Well, for us, creative problem solving, more often than not, I'll come back to a word that we use a lot, and it's called reductionism. It's a really complex world that we live in. There are no easy answers, and you know it is fairly complicated. And so one of the things we try and do is we try and simplify. We simplify our ideas and our briefs down to as few words as possible. And we're pretty ruthless in terms of how we do that. Overseas for Guinness beer for a long time, the essence of the strategy behind Guinness, for example, was good things come to those who wait. Sort of counterintuitive if you think about it, because one of the knocks on Guinness is it takes a while to pour a perfect pint. So what we did was we flipped that around into actually a positive thing. Sometimes the best things in life take a little bit longer to wait for. Our Snickers campaign is really pivots off of a very simple strategy, but the rearticulation of that strategy is quite clever. And it's it's frankly, you're not you when you're hungry. And it's it's it was right there in front of us the whole time. And it took uh, a whole bunch of, of people and a lot of analytics and everything else to come up with. But, it, but really, the idea was born out of a group of people sitting around talking about it and understanding what the essence of hunger and satisfaction really is all about. So sometimes it's not coming up with a you know a definition of a new problem or even a new idea it's just a rearticulation of the idea that makes it more relevant to the audiences and the times in which we live do you find that that applies to non-creative situations that might not necessarily lend themselves to you know a creative team maybe a board meeting or finance meeting or something that might not be you know 
maybe as fun <laughs> as trying to figure out, you know, an advertising campaign or slogan. Well, despite the fact that I just described how important data and analytics are, sometimes it comes down to common sense. And so one of the simple things we try and do is try and put ourselves in the shoes of the people we're trying to appeal to. So if we're trying to market to millennials, um, it's helpful to have millennials developing the ideas. If we happen to be marketing to a female skewed consumer group, it's great to have the right kinds of people literally working on those campaigns. So we try and put ourselves in the shoes of those we're appealing to so that we can better understand the challenges and, and, and seek out the opportunities um, that they may be facing into. Our FedEx work is an example that comes to mind. Um, FedEx has always been a company that stands for absolutely positively. But they're, you know, an enabler. What they try and do is appeal to small business to help those businesses be as successful as possible. And one of the ways they do that is they demonstrate it through the lens of, hey, we get it. We understand how business works today. We understand that you're under extreme financial pressure. We understand that it's torture going through airports. So for lack of a better example, through FedEx office print ship online, you can download your presentation at a FedEx office. You can have it forwarded and bound uh, at the destination site. So you don't have to lug portfolio bags through airports the way we sometimes used to have to do. Um, And it's just that, that sort of level of understanding that I think whether you're in a boardroom or whether you're in a client meeting or you're trying to unpack and solve a problem, those simple rules, you know, of, of engagement come into play. Can you describe a situation that wasn't necessarily related to developing an ad concept that required a lot of creativity and input to solve? And um, how did that work? The, the, The process can be a little bit messy. And I think for this question, I'll come back to a word called partnership. Partnership is the essence of our business. It's more important today than ever. Why is that? Because, you know, despite the fact that we try and stay on the cutting edge of technology, the world is moving at a hyperspeed that is really close to impossible to keep up with. So one of the things we've tried to do is, and this is counterintuitive to an agency that likes to sort of own the quote unquote ideas, is we've had to open up our doors, knock down our walls and invite partners into the agency, not only to share with us what's coming up around the next corner, what the next big innovation is, but actually to roll up their sleeves and work with our creative people on how these various technological advances might play out in, in, in a marketing solution. One of the cases here was our Lowe's Vines videos. Vines had uh, been relatively new in the marketplace. No brand had found an application for those Vines. And Lowe's is what I would call a generous brand. Part of the uh, the method behind the madness of our Lowe's marketing is offering tips, little tips of generosity to people to help them through the challenges of home improvement. And we challenged ourselves and we said, can we give tips in the form of six-second Vine videos? So we film these things in-house, in our production studio. This is another theme that comes up. More and more fast, good, inexpensive. In the old days, it used to be pick two. You can never have all three. If it has to be really fast and good, there's no way it can be cheap. If it has to be inexpensive and fast, there's no way it can be good. Well, now everybody expects it all. So by partnering with Vines and with our creative teams, we came up with these little gems of six seconds of generous tips on how to get a strip screw out of a piece of wood or how to water your plants for a week when you're traveling little tips that really caught on. And now we've got about 100 of these things that we're cross-pollinating all of our social and digital channels with, and it's really caught on like wildfire. Um, And I can think of four or five more examples, but partnership, partnership, partnership is really the core theme there. So you may have already answered this question, but how do you characterize your management style? Well, I think those who know me pretty well, and most people do know me pretty well because I'm pretty much an open book, would describe me as fairly humble, Uh, highly caffeinated, 
I'm fairly energetic. I try very hard to stay focused. Um, I'm fairly impatient, but I'm a pretty good collaborator. And, and I really believe and I love building teams and then empowering those teams to get ideas over the finish line. That's, I just want to touch on that for one second yeah. more. There are lots of ideas floating around, but they're sort of like dandelions on a windy day. They can sort of just puff blow into the wind. And one of the biggest challenges and one of my biggest frustrations is when you work on an idea and you get up to the five yard line and you just can't punch it over the goal line. You can't quite get the idea to happen because maybe you haven't articulated it the right way, or maybe you haven't explained to the client just how easy it is to execute whatever it may be. So that's one of my frustrations is, is getting the ideas. That's one thing, but getting them to happen is true success. Sure. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> There's lots of little stumbling blocks along the way and rabbit mm, holes lots to fall of, into. Lots of pitfalls and yeah. obstacles. Yeah. What do you find the biggest contributors are to finding creative or new or different approaches to problem solving? One of the biggest problems to problem solving is frankly, finding the best talent in the industry. Uh, people ask me sometimes what I do. A lot of what I do is being relentlessly focused on talent, both finding the best talent and then also keeping the best talent. And um, when people ask me, you know, what sorts of people thrive at a, at a BBDO or in the industry, I think the best answer really comes back to the kinds of values that our best people embody. And those values, we have 10 of them. I won't be able to remember all of them, but I'll try. But these are, these are things that stick out in my mind. We, we look for people who are about we, not me, hand raisers, not finger pointers, people who bounce back. This is a business where you get knocked on your rear end often. And I think, you know, your success isn't how high you fly in the good times. It's how fast you bounce back in the tough times. Uh, people who radiate and don't drain. There are people who walk into the room and just suck the air out of it. And we try and radiate. We look for closers. That's building on what I just explained to you, which is closing, you know, getting the idea to happen. People who present themselves and the agency well, whether they're in the office or out of the office, people who clients love and respect people who unquestionably do the right thing. They have a moral compass and they have a, an understanding of and a belief in our value structure, which oftentimes I have found overlaps pretty well with a lot of the clients that we are fortunate enough to work with. There's a great deal of overlap in those values. It's great. So winning the war on talent, and that's the kind of value structure we look for. Yeah. So when you're thinking about or you know hiring talent, do you find that perhaps in some ways you can train them on the mechanics as long as they have those values? We try and get a gauge of what the values are, but um, I mean, culture trumps anything else. So if you don't have the right culture and the only way to have the right culture is to have the right people who embody the right values, then you're really nowhere. So yeah, I believe in obviously the values are sacrosanct, but you can do a lot by training. And we spend a lot of time mentoring some of our, our best people and giving them additional training, whether it be in certain technologies or understanding the media landscape, any and all of the above. Mm -hmm. So we've talked a lot about creativity in the workplace, but um, have you applied these approaches to your non-professional life? And if so, how? I have. My um, non-professional life is like a tangled spool of fishing line in, in a way. <laughs> it is um, multidimensional. I... 
I have uh, two young kids and um, a dog and a lovely wife who puts up with me and is terrific. And so that's obviously at the very high end of my priority list. I also spend a lot of time and I enjoy spending time with the Police Athletic League, where I'm fortunate enough to be the president of the board. Uh, It helps an awful lot of kids, kids who really need help in the boroughs around New York City. So I really believe in one of the best investments anyone can make is in the future of a child. And uh, the American Red Cross that I fell in love with when we actually pitched their business about four or five years ago. And after Sandy hit New York, I was pretty hooked on that. And so now I'm serving on the board of directors for that. I believe it's important to serve. I think my, my challenge is, you know, and, and it will never be perfect. I don't care whether you're a male, a female, whether you're a millennial or a Generation X or whoever you are. The balance of time is never something that's going to be perfect. So I've learned how to say no, probably more than anything else in the last couple of, well, certainly in the last decade. But it's hard um, to do. Yeah, I think my, but I think the balance is more roughly right than it is precisely wrong. I think it's a pretty good balance, and um, I couldn't take on anything more right now. Particularly if you know managing the the BBDO New York office is obviously t- takes a, a lot of emphasis and focus and time as well. But you know I'm into it, and I think that whether it's serving clients or you know making sure that I'm being the best dad and husband I can be, or, or whether it's serving the the, the not for profits that I'm that I'm really proud uh, and honored to be a part of, I, I see it all as sort of this whole this whole sort of mantra of really being built to serve and trying to give back to this world that has given me so much, at least um, up until this point in, in my life and in my career. Sounds like that might be something you encourage just um, through your corporate culture as well. You're absolutely right. I don't have all of the statistics to be able to back up what I'm about to say, but I will tell you that since we started pointing the compass of the agency around this whole idea of built to serve, and we also do a lot of not-for-profit work, and we've spent a lot of time through that reductionist process that I outlined, really looking for the inner purpose of what our clients are and what they represent. And and it's key, like it's not inventing a new purpose. It's really more often than not simply revealing its true self on its best day. I think it has really energized our people, BBDOers. And I think it is not a coincidence that our success over the last three, four, five years coincides perfectly with that sort of philosophy. People are fired up. They want to make a difference. They want to build a legacy. They want to improve the lives of others. I don't know when business became sort of the evil word, but business is good, especially when business is good. Business puts people to work. It puts roofs over their heads. It helps them feed their children. Um, Business can help society. It can help humanity. And a lot of the companies that we do business with, whether it's Lowe's Home Improvement, which is really life improvement, or whether it's FedEx, which might just contain like a college acceptance letter for some kid that needs to get it, or whatever it may be, we're able to find the good or the purpose behind the brands that we represent. So um, as you can tell, I'm pretty fired up about it. Yeah, I like it. Kind of finding that, that why, you know? Yeah. Um, so this is something we started talking about actually just a couple of hours ago. We've been kicking this around a lot. I thought, well, hey, I've got this opportunity. I'm going to ask you. Far away. <laughs> well, I don't know if it'll make it in the podcast, but I'm really curious about this. I think we all are as a team. We spend a lot of time, I guess, trying to anticipate the unanticipated consequences, right? The unintended consequences. And, and I think this concept of a small number of influencers really being able to affect the reputation of a company is somewhat new. Mm-hmm. Um, technology has helped advance that for sure. And I know our team, and I'm sure we're not alone, tries to think through all of the possible unintended consequences. You know, every word, every photograph, every video angle, people that we talk to, you know, the words that they're saying. 
And how are people going to take issue with that? You know, how are they going to reinterpret that? You know, that instant access to media, the multiple channels, that ability to kind of anonymously influence public opinion. Sometimes we find that can be inhibiting for a creative team. And I'm wondering if that's something that you have experienced, because you really want to balance that, you know, taking seriously what people's concerns are without shutting down a team that really wants to think, you know, through all of these different ideas and and take them all out to sometimes some of their really, you know, kind of (laughs) wacky, you know, end results. So, yeah. Do you, have you experienced that? We have. And I think it goes back to a shift in the way that communications has evolved. And I think that not that long ago, everything was about more command and control. We're controlling the message. And we have a game plan, and we're going to do due diligence around understanding the consumer, and then we're going to build these strategies, and then we're going to build these idea platforms, and then we're going to execute, and then we're going to monitor them, and we're going to optimize as we go forward. That's sort of the way it was done. Today, it's uncomfortable, but we've learned how to let go a little bit more. And because we recognize and we respect that our consumers or our customers have a voice in the matter as well. What's driven that, and you hit the nail on the head, is technology and the shift from one-way to two-way communication. All I will say is you have to respect that and you have to do some sort of contingency planning and wargaming or spitballing or whatever you want to call it. But the fact of the matter is, is that things will happen which is why it's more important than ever that everybody has a firm understanding of what the value structure is and what the non-negotiables are so that when something does happen, you can make the best of that situation or correct for it if something is to break down. And believe me, something will break down, whether you like it or not. But that's just the world we live in. Yeah, and it seems to me, I mean, absolutely the value structure, but maybe also just an understanding of your personality, you know, your company's personality, your firm, your organization, yeah. and making sure that you, no matter how you have to respond, can do that in a way that stays true to who you are, I guess. That's exactly right. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit and talk with you about diversity because we're almost out of time. Um, really enjoyed having this conversation with you. Good. But um, I know this is an area that's important for you. Um, I know it's an area you've been awarded for. And so I'm interested in how increasing diversity at BBDO has made a difference in your organization. Increasing diversity is one of our top priorities within the company, not because it's politically the right thing to do, not because um, there are vocal critics of the advertising industry for being predominantly white male driven. We push diversity because it's good for our business. Um, Our audiences and our customers and our consumers that we market to are incredibly diverse. And you know the statistics as well as anybody. And it's easy to look them up. The demographic of the United States of America is constantly evolving. And so building on what I was saying earlier, we have to make sure that we have the right people within the agency to be able to craft those messages. We have to be reaching out and attracting more people to want to get into this industry which is one of the reasons why I'm honored to be here with you today, because we are trying to attract the best and brightest and get an unfair share of those people to join us. But the the whole idea of brainstorming, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, brainstorming ideas actually originated from Alex Osborne. He's no relation. It hasn't hurt my career, but he's no relation to this John Osborne, the one that's talking to you right now. He invented this word brainstorming, and his idea was you get a bunch of like-minded people around a table and you come up collectively with ideas. The reality is, in a Harvard Business School paper, uh, white paper on this a couple of years ago, really shed a light on it, is 
the best way to get the best ideas is to get a group of non-like-minded minds around the table with different experiences, different backgrounds, different ways of thinking. That leads to the best ideas, and it leads to the fastest development of those ideas. So for us, it's... um, it's something that we have to do. You know, we're our own biggest critics. We're trying very hard to continue to stir the cement to make sure it never hardens. We are a large agency. We try each and every day, and it takes a lot of work to act small. But what is a common theme, regardless of, of, of anything else, is diversity is really, really important for what we need to do to bring the ideas to the table. Yeah, certainly in higher ed. That's an important issue facing Appalachian as well. Um, I mean, frankly, we got a lot to figure out on our campus, you know, and we're working hard to become more inclusive here, but we are a predominantly white campus. And we've had a lot of discussions about that, um, particularly in the last couple of semesters on our campus, and they haven't all been easy discussions. So I guess my last question is just, you know, I wonder what lessons you think are really important to learn for a university or any organization that has a commitment to make systemic change, to have a more diverse makeup. I just want to make sure I understand your question directly. What you're trying to get into the what the best ideas are for that, or yeah, or just I mean, one of the things that I think we're learning is that um, you know we're going to screw up, mm-hmm. and kind of back to what you were talking about, just for your organization, pick yourself up and dust yourself off and bounce back as quickly as you can. But we we're in a period of change, of change for our university, and trying to figure out what that means for us. Mm-hmm. I wonder if, having been there fairly recently with your organization, there are lessons that you might have learned that you can share with us in terms of going through that change and what that means. We have gone through a large shift. We've gone through massive change, not only in our agency, but the industry has gone through big change. And I think the thing that that I would challenge everybody with is just never settle. Never settle. Never assume that good is good enough. Just constantly be stirring that batter to make sure that it doesn't get crusty and hard. And the world is moving at such a fast pace that if you don't do that, you might find yourself far out of the race in the long run. Be relentlessly like a dog on a pant leg. Just like never settle. That's That, that would be my recommendation. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. Well, John Osborne, thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. I know our students are going to just um, have a really great time interacting with you and, and listening to, to you tomorrow. I'm going to enjoy listening to your, to your talk as well. So I appreciate your time today with us, and um, welcome to Boone. Thank you very much. Thank it's you. pleasure. Today's show was written and produced by Troy Tuttle, Dave Blanks, and me, Megan Hayes. Our sound engineer is Dave Blanks. Our web team is Pete Montaldi and Alex Waterworth. Our theme song was written and performed by Derek Wyckoff of Naked Gods. Our podcast studio is dedicated to Greg Cuddy. Special thanks to Stephen Dubner for the inspiration, advice, and moral support. Sound Effect is a production of the University Communications Team at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. Thanks for listening. For Sound Effect, I'm Megan Hayes.